0: diagram, um, trying to find the, so let's take an example. Let's say you've got uh, a particular frequency optical wave going in a particular direction. That means you know its incident k vector. And then let's say you're given a crystal where you've got the ability to introduce a particular um, acoustic wave into that crystal and you can orient your transducer to send it in any direction you want. You could ask, How could you orient the crystal or the transducer in order to get efficient diffraction? And so you would draw your crystal uh, normal shells. So again, let's just consider the same sort of positive uniaxial crystal. And now I can ask, okay, does that geometry land me on a point on one of the normal shells. It doesn't, so something needs to change. Maybe the direction of the k vector could change to go from this point to a point on normal shell. There's a couple possible solutions. Um, if I consider that the k vector, the acoustic k vector, right? if I can control the direction but not its length, can lie anywhere on that circle And just look at points where that intersects a normal shell. And those are, this should be symmetric. If I had drawn this uh, carefully, it would be symmetric. And I would have four possible geometries that would give me diffraction. Okay, And you can imagine that those angles are pretty similar. So it's possible that you can have diffraction in both. I'm happy to do that. Do you want to pose questions like this and sort of work through things on the bo- well? So I'll let you answer on the discussion forum what you want to do. But one option is, you can sort of have an interactive, just ask questions, we'll work through things on the board, and uh, not necessarily specific problems, but sort of general problem ideas that you come up with. That's that's a possibility. Cause, well, cause huh? like, let's say you know, somebody asks a question, and I don't really like understand his question, and then you guys Well, you can. Uh, I'll let you figure that out on the discussion board what people want. And also, if you have specific questions you want to ask, you can ask them ahead of time. That way, I can think about them ahead of time and maybe come up with something intelligent to say. I make most of the stuff. Um, okay. So we're going to talk about electro optics today. Right. Um, so good news and bad news. Bad news is it's a whole bunch more answers to talk about, a whole bunch more uh, expressions to learn. The good news is they're very similar to the ones we've learned for acousto-optics. It's a lot of the same types of um, analysis being done over and over again, so going through this will hopefully um, cement the, the techniques that we're using and the, the analysis tools that we're going to use to solve these types of issues. Okay, so electro-optics is uh, a term that refers to the fact that a crystal can have its optical properties changed by the application of an external electric field. Okay. It can also have its properties changed by an internal electric field. What I mean by an internal electric field is the light going through the material can itself change the material properties. And that, that discipline is called uh, nonlinear optics. But when we're talking about an external electric field applied by some capacitor or some uh, voltage applied to the crystal, then we call that electro-optics. But we'll, all these expressions and all these tensors and their forms, we'll see again when we talk about uh, second harmonic generation and nonlinear optics. OK, so we have our friend the impermeability tensor. Same, express, same tensor that we had. In acousto optics, that gave us uh, one over the index of refraction, or okay. had had the form of one over the index of refraction, but it's a tensor, so it has components that we call i j that tell us how the um, how, how not only the principal indices of refraction change, but how they couple to each other the off-diagonal terms will involve coupling between uh, <coughs> principal, principal axes. And we'll see that today. So in general, that is not, the, the elements of that tensor are not just a constant, but they can be affected by an externally applied electric field. And so we do a Taylor series expansion of the elements of that tensor. There's a term that is the zero field term. And then there's a term that looks like, how much those components change in the presence of an applied field times the applied field. And then there's a second-order term. And there's higher-order terms as well, but um, we'll see that the typical fields necessary to make these terms significant is very large. So higher-order terms become more and more difficult to, to experimentally achieve. Okay, so this term right here called the linear electrooptic effect. And we give it a name, R, the R tensor, or the uh, linear electro-optic tensor. We also call it the Pockels effect after its discoverer. And we write it as a tensor, Rijk. So the ij refers to the fact that this tells us about the change in the I throw jth column of the impermeability tensor. And the k tells us how that changes in the presence of an electric field in the direction k. So k is x, y, or z. The quadratic term also can be written as a tensor. We call this the... uh, quadratic electro effect, or the quadratic electro-optic tensor Sijkl. This is called the Kerr effect. And again, the ij here stand for um, eta ij, how the i-th row and j-th column of the impermeability tensor change in the presence of an electric field that has components along k and along l. So that's where the KL come from. And so i remind you that our index ellipsoid can be written in this, in this, uh, in this particular form of matrix notation as eta ij times xi xj, where we assume summation over repeated indices. So we sum over i, we sum over j. We set that equal to 1. And we'll, we'll, look at, we'll expand this out and look at each term um, in more detail in a minute, but first a little bit about these different uh, tensors. Like we had for the acousto-optic effect and the acousto-optic tensor, the electro-optic tensor has two coefficients, I and J, which can be swapped without changing the value of the tensor because the impermeability tensor is Hermitian. And because of that, r i j k equals Rjik. It reduces the number of independent elements in that tensor. So if there's three possible values for i, j, and k, then there's three times three. There's nine possible values for the i, j part. And only five of those, uh, only six of those, are unique. Okay, so we can contract the i and j into a single index, the same way we've done for the g uh, tensors. tensors. Likewise, Sijkl, we can permute the i and j without affecting the, the value of the uh, tensor components. We can also change the order of differentiation, which means we can com- commute the k and the l without changing the value. So these uh, nine elements represented by ij can be contracted to six. The nine elements representing KL can be contracted to six. And so instead of 81 elements, independent elements, we have 36 independent elements. All right, so we write the um, electro-optic tensor in contracted notation with the first index representing the six independent elements of the, uh, of the tensor. So... So just to remind you, when we do this 3 matrix, that's Hermitian becomes a 1 by 6 matrix. And so the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 terms represent the 1, one two, two, three, three, two, three, one, three, 1, 2, terms of that tensor. The k terms, remember, describe which direction the electric field is acting. It can act along x, y, or z. So there's these six elements times 3, so there's the 18 independent elements. OK, so again, we can use some symmetry considerations to further reduce the number of uh, non-zero elements in these tensors. So I stated this last time with the acousto-optic effect. So we can demonstrate it now or prove it with a thought experiment for a centrosymmetric crystal. So centrosymmetric crystal is one that is symmetric if you invert your coordinate axes. Um, And if you do that, if you invert the coordinate axes and you don't change the location of any of the the uh, atoms in the crystal, you should reproduce this, a crystal with the same material properties. That is to say that um, if Rijk is the electro-optic coefficient for a center-symmetric crystal, if you invert that crystal, so you flip every atom around, its, uh, around the origin, then r prime ijk, the electro-optic tensor, in your inverted crystal should be the same as in the non-inverted crystal because the crystals are the same however the electrooptic effect at least the effect effect the pockels effect is related to the linear displacement of charges in the crystal an electric field is going to displace charges okay, and the amount of the effect depends on how much, displacement, how much uh, zero field displacement of those charges there are. And because of that, you'd expect that if you invert the crystal, any dipoles inside the crystal get inverted. And therefore, the effect of an external electric field would be the opposite. So an external electric field that would stretch out the dipoles, if you invert them, it would compress them. So the electro-optic tensor in the non-inverted crystal should be the opposite of that in the inverted crystal. And the only way that both of these constraints can be met is that the electro-optic tensor is identically 0. So in a centrosymmetric crystal, the electro-optic tensor is 0. There's no linear electro-optic effect. Um, well, we've defined the prime to be our crystal when we've inverted the coordinates. And that w- that's only true because we have, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, that would be true. That makes sense, yeah. Uh, but this one's only true because of the symmet- symmetry of the crystal. OK, so that's easy. That's form of the electro-optic tensor in a centrosymmetric crystal. I put this up, not because I'm going to read these, but you can reference these in the homework or in your work uh, later on. You know the, sim- the structure of a crystal, and then you can read off the uh, non-zero elements. You notice there's a lot of, in many of these crystals, there's a lot of zeros, a lot of zero elements. <laughs> All right, so there's pages and pages of these. And if you want to know what symmetry a crystal has, you need to look that up as well. So um, your yeah, I mentioned, is great for having lots of tables. I posted some of those in the notes here. Um, this table, you can look up a particular crystal. Here's gallium arsenide. It tells you the symmetry group, 4 bar 3m. And then if you want, you can go back and look for 4 bar 3m. It is but it's three What that? Where? 4 bar 3m. m. the uh, other. there are some three bars elsewhere. So um, right, you can look look those up and figure out what crystals correspond to what the What is what? and over here. I don't know offhand. Um, I'd have to look. If you want to know what four-bar three m means, I can't tell you, but I do have a. I thought it was there. I I do have. If you look at the last page of the references, I did find a reference on the web where you can learn what those that nomenclature means. Yeah, but what is it? Okay, so we had our expression for the index ellipsoid, which in the contracted notation looks like eta ij xi xj equals 1. And that's very concise, but it's more, uh, more clear what this means if we expand it out. So I've now written eta ij. I'll consider all six terms of that. Eta 1. one The eta1 term is the 1 over nx. And if I also add to this index ellipsoid some perturbation to the impermeability tensor, The original terms are my 1 over nx, 1 over ny, and 1 over nz. And if I've got my coordinate system aligned to that of the crystal, the principal axes of the crystal, I don't have any off diagonal terms in eta ij. Now, in the presence of an electric field in the direction k, I'm going to get a change in the impermeability tensor. And so here's an electric field in the direction of k. Here's the change in the permeability tensor, the first, the first component of that, which is the 1, 1 component, which affects the index long x. Okay, so that's right there. Here's the same electric field affecting the second term of the impermeability tensor. The second term is the 2, 2 term, which means we're multiplying by yy, but that appears in the y squared term here. Right, likewise, here's the same field affecting the third term, the R33 term, which is the ZZ, a Z squared term. The off-diagonal terms, remember, don't have any contribution from the unperturbed uh, impermeability tensor. So we're assuming that's in the principal coordinate axes. So the off-diagonal terms are all zero. So these three terms are entirely due to the per- a perturbation of the impermeability tensor for the second term. And so we have EK times delta eta 4 which looks like R4k. Remember, the fourth term is the 2, 3 term meaning y times z so that gets multiplied by y times z There's also going to be a term that looks like uh, not just a 2, 3, but then there's going to be a 3, 2 term, which looks like z times y. And that's where the factor of 2 comes in. So if I wrote out each term, I would have 2 that were identical. OK, so EK times R5K gives the fifth term of the impermeability tensor change fifth term corresponds to the 1, 3, or the x, z term. So that's times x, z. And then likewise, I have a term that is the x, y term. So all that equals 1. And I have to sum over all possible values of k, because it's a repeated index. So I've explicitly written that here as the sum over k. So k equals 1, 2, 3. So if I have an arbitrary electric field that has some component along x, some component along y, some component along z, each of those gives me an expression that looks like this. I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, uh, 18 terms in my index ellipsoid now. okay so uh, we generally don't write this summation explicitly. We just infer it by the repeated indices so we might write this like this. and this is an expression for an ellipse. If we don't have these, these uh, coupling terms, we just have some, some factor in front of x squared, some factor in front of y squared, some factor in front of z squared. These factors are related to the, uh, the m- major and minor, the semi-axes of the ellipse. These cross-coupling terms represent rotation. We'll see that in a second. We've seen that before with the acousto-optics. We, did, we had a similar expression for a uh, a uh, rotated index ellipsoid that we, we recast in a different coordinate system. So let's do an example. Let's consider a very common material used in uh, electro optics and nonlinear optics called KDP. It's referred to as KDP. That's that effectively is its name, KDP. It stands for potassium dihydrogen phosphide, phosphate, something like that. I think it says on the next slide. Um, but it's just, it's KDP to anybody who, who uses it. Phosphate, potassium dihydrogen phosphate. Um, okay, so there's the chemical formula. We can use that to look up what its uh, crystal class is. Once we know it's crystal class, we can find the form of its electro coefficient. And what we're trying to find is, um, if you have an electric field applied along the z direction, what are the new principal axes? So we're going to have an expression like this, where E k is just an electric field along z, so k equals 3. So we'll just plug in k equals 3 for all the values of k. We'll have an expression, and then we'll manipulate it to get it into a diagonal form, where we can say, OK, in this particular coordinate system where it's diagonal, that's the coordinate system aligns to the principal axes. OK, so we're looking for KDP. Let me go back in the notes. Here it is, KDP. This is one of those 4-bar 2m symmetry classes. So I can go back a little further find the form of the electro-optic coefficient. I think it's on this page. 4 bar 2 m. Right, right there. So it's tetragonal. It's only got two unique values, and they're in the uh, one four, two five, and 3, 6. Yeah, uh, 6. Let's put that backwards. 4, 1, 5, 2, and 6, 3 terms of the tensor are non-zero. And the 5, 2 term is equal to the 4, 1 term. So they're both given by this R4 one. Four one, one. What, this matrix is not the of that matrix. What? Uh, what that matrix said? The x, one, 1, x, 2, 2, no, and the 4, and four. Uh, This is just a very general 3 by 3 matrix showing how the 9 elements get contracted into 6. This one is already contracted. So these, these six rows here actually represent oh. nine. You can think of this, really, this, this is a 3 by 3 by 3 tensor. Okay, okay, okay. But we're contracting the first 3 by 3 into a 6 by 1. OK, so that's four, So this is R231. one and means This is the fifth term. Even though the value is the same as this, this is the 5, 2 term. So that 5 means 1, 3. So this is R131. 3, 1. 1, 3, yeah, okay. Yes, I'm reading, I'm reading what's written, not what it is. Okay, so let's let's do let's work this out. This is, okay, so R41 R51 R R52 and R63 are the non-zero terms in this tensor. And The 5-2 term has the same magnitude as the 4-1 term, so it's it's written as R41, but it occupies the 5-2 space. Okay, so in contracted notation, make a little table. Contracted, expanded. 1, how do we write that in the expanded notation? Okay, two, three. Okay, four? Five? Six? Okay. So now let's recognize that the index here is contracted. So we have rijk going to rik. When I write these in the notes, I always try to, if an index isn't contracted, I try to leave it unchanged. Which is why, ik. Normally, you'd, you you'd use successive uh, letters there to denote that. Yeah, but I've I've left out the j to to note that it's been contracted. Okay, so um, if these two terms that are being contracted to one. So when you do the expansion, the first term that we apply these rules to to expand. So r41. Is R two three R five two the five goes to a one three and R six three goes to R one two three 7. expanding the first index into Two values. Okay, so let me go back to the question. have no, rep- well, not, well, if they have a repeated index, that means they're lying along that diagonal right. That would mean an electric field in one direction changes the index of a fraction in that same direction. And that's not what we're seeing here. Okay, So when we write out the, um, the index ellipsoid, we can relate what these terms are to what uh, changes they represent. Um, if you like, you can also look up the value for R41 and R63. I think they're in one of those tables. So numerically, they're given here. Likewise, uh, there's values for the index of refraction that are going to be useful uh, when we get done. So it is a negative crystal because Ne is less than N-naught. It's a negative uniaxial crystal, very good. OK, so the equation of the index ellipsoid, this is the general form. Okay. We already have this. This doesn't assume anything. But now we will uh, require k equal 3, because we said the electric field was applied along z. There's no x or y component. So although we're summing over all possible values of k, k equals 1 and k equals 2, all those terms will be 0 because there's no component in the electric field. OK, so if k equals 3, then I'm going to write, just for clarity, ek is ez. Um, oh, I've, I've done this in an opposite order on the notes. Um, before assuming k equals 3, what I've done is I've assumed all these other elements of the electro-optic tensor are zero. So I'm gonna take away any terms that aren't. right? So this is not four, one, five, two, or six, three. That goes away. I still have the x squared over nx squared. R2K is not gonna satisfy 4, 1, 5, 2, or 6, 3. So there's this term goes to 0. I still have y squared over n y squared. Likewise, R3k is 0. So I still have z squared over nz squared. And then over here, this term that looks like R4k, I do have an R41 that's non-zero. This 1 here is in the spot for k. right? So that would h- require an electric field along x. Right? So here's that R41 element. Here's an electric field along x. Over here, I have r5k. There is a non zero value for r5k if k equals 2. So let me assume that the electric field, the comp- let me write the component of the electric field along y times r52. And now I've gone ahead and substituted the identity that r52 equals r41 in this matrix, or in this tensor. And likewise, this R6k is non-zero if k is equal to 3. So I've gone ahead and written R63 and E3. E3 I'm calling Ez. But the problem states the electric field is only along z. There's no component along x, so that term is 0. No component along y, so that term is 0. That leaves this. Okay, so even though we start with um, 18 elements or 18 terms to this index ellipsoid, we end up with only 4 once we've taken all these uh, 0 elements into account. So this is a much more um, tractable expression. We can understand what's going on here a little bit better. The, plez- the presence of an electric field along z causes a coupling between the x and y polarizations, or between the x and y indices of refraction. Okay, so can anyone think of a physical mechanism how that could happen? In very general terms. You got a crystal lattice and you're applying an electric force, that's what the electric field is. In the z direction, and it must be changing the distribution of charges in the xy plane. What's that? Um, Well, you can certainly imagine you have, say, two charges like this, and if you push them together, they might sort of displace. You can imagine sort of three-dimensional well structures where you change the depth of the well, you cause Uh, cause the equilibrium points to shift in X and Y. There must be something like that going on, and I suspect if you look at the geometric structure of the the crystal, you might be able to envision that somehow. Um, Okay, so what we want to do is find the principal axes. We're not there yet. You could plot this. right? You could plot this, and maybe if you exaggerate the difference between NE and NO, you could see This represents an ellipse and that the the semi-axes of the ellipse are not along x, y, and z, but in the x, y plane, they're rotated. Um, What we want is to express this in a form that looks like this. In some coordinate system, x prime, y prime, z prime, where there are no off-diagonal terms, if we do that, then this Ellipse in the x prime, y prime, z prime coordinate system has its major and minor states, semi-axes along x prime, y prime, and z prime. So these directions, x prime, y prime, and z prime, are the principal axes of the perturbed crystal. And what we need to do is find a way to relate this to this. So we can start with a little inspection. We can see that um, z should equal z prime. There's no difference between this term and this term. However, in x and y, there's a coupling. This x and y has a cross term that we need to separate out into components along x prime and y prime. And we'll do that by um, considering x prime and y prime to be rotated relative to x and y about the z-axis. If this is x and y, then let's let x prime and y prime, the coordinate system that's rotated with an angle theta. Let me check that what I drew corresponds to what's in the notes. Um, So x prime, I guess x is going to have components of x prime and minus y prime. That's what's up here. OK. So this represents what's drawn in the notes. Um, you can. This is just a rotation matrix applied to the vector x, y. And I will now substitute in this expression for x, this expression for y up here, in both the squared terms and in this cross term. So when I plug this expression for x into the squared term, I get just this, uh, this value for x expressed in my new coordinate system squared. Likewise, this is the value for y in the primed coordinate system squared. And then I have the cross term. This is x. This is y. I'm just doing direct substitution. And now I'll multiply out. And what I hope to find is that I can make the cross-terms that appear here, that have an x prime, y prime, cancel the cross-terms that appear here. Okay, so that's where I was. I've now expanded everything. So I have, for example, an x prime squared. That stays there. And a y prime squared. But then I have a cross-term that looks like 2x prime, y prime, cosine theta, sine theta. And that is here, and the 2 sine theta cosine theta I've written is sine 2 theta. Likewise, over here, I get x prime y prime. These are the non-cross terms. The and I believe this is a mistake. That should be an x prime, a y prime, and no, no. Oh, that would make sense. Because okay. there should be two x prime squares, right? So there should be two x prime squareds, right? Oh, you're right. You're right. That one's a cosine squared. That one's a sine squared. That's one. I, this term is duplicated, which is confusing me. That, I don't know. I just, that should only be there once. Okay. So this is the cross term from this. This is the cross term from that. And then over here, I have my x prime cosine squared and my x prime or times x prime sine is this term. My y's give me this term. And this cross term and this cross term are the same, and give me this cross term. Uh, they're not the same, but they do give me that term. Okay, fair enough. A uh, trig identity takes me from uh, x prime x prime, prime x prime y prime cosine squared minus sine squared gives me the cosine two theta. All right, so. Here's a, the same expression recast in a different form. And I want this. This is now, both well, this and these, those are my cross terms. I want them to be 0. These two cancel. This one needs to be 0 by choosing the angle appropriately. Right, so theta equals 45 gives me cosine of 90 degrees is 0. So my arbitrary angle is no longer arbitrary. It needs to be at 45 degrees in order to make my prime coordinate system the uh, principal axis of this this crystal now. So I can now plug in 45 degrees and evaluate all the sines and cosines to cast this in a slightly simpler form. So here is that simpler form. Pretty much just the sines all disappear because they're equal to unity. And then I can take and group the terms in x prime. And there's a 1 over n naught squared from this term and an r63ez from uh, this term. Likewise, I can group the terms in y prime squared. But whereas I have uh, 1 over n naught here, I have minus r63ez. So these factors in front of the x prime and y prime look similar, but one has a positive perturbation, one is a negative perturbation due to the electric field. Z coordinate doesn't change. So I can look at my uh, index ellipse in the xy plane, or the intersection of my ellipsoid in the xy plane. And what I've done is I've taken something that was a circle, right, because initially x and y were the ordinary indices of refraction. So the uh, polarization is independent of the, the angle. And now I've got principal axes at 45 degrees. And the index is getting bigger in one dimension and smaller in the other. So it's like squashing it into a, an ellipse. I don't know whether the dotted line or the solid line is circular there. but. Um depends on the direction of the applied electric field. You can invert that and change the, the effect. So this is just some just sort of qualitatively showing you what's happening. What's that? Yeah, it looks pretty similar. It's a change to the index along x prime and y prime. Um, you could say that the principal axis rotates 45 degrees, but that's not quite why not there's a change to the indices of refraction along the principal axes but what were the principal axes when we started with that we started with X y and Z and in the XY plane um, we had a uniaxial crystal so in the XY plane the index was independent of direction We started with a circle. So there's no defined direction for the major and minor axes of that circle. So it's not so much that we've rotated the coordinate system here as we've defined a coordinate system. Now, that said, if we started with an anisotropic material so that this NO and any... These two NOs were not the same. They like NX and NY. Um, then we'd start with an ellipse and we'd be squashing it in a different direction and getting a, a new a new orientation for our ellipse. What bothers me there, though, is you're in normal, in the ordinary direction, everything is the same. Now you're applying an electric field, and with 45 degrees relative to one of these, which is an arbitrary angle, you're decreasing, and in another one, you're increasing. Well, so X and Y. We said we're our principal axes, so we, we, we said we could write our index ellipsoids in X and Y in a form that made them our principal axes. Um, we could pick any direction that's orthogonal to Z and call that a principal axis. X and Y aren't just arbitrary, though. They're actually aligned to the, some crystal structure. Now, if the crystal has uh, symmetry in the XY plane, its optical properties are independent of the direction in the XY plane. Of, polarization, but the, the structure of the crystal is not. Well, I would say, because, uh, yes, yes, there are. It's just a number. You can look it up in a table. And I think uh, we have it right here. a small number, if you look at a volt per meter is a unit of electric field, right? So you can ask, how much electric field do you need to make this term unity? If it's unity, then it will be on the order of, and this term will be on the order of this term. And you need an electric field of 10 to the 12 volts per meter. So that's, for realistic electric fields, this perturbation is always going to be small. Okay, so we can relate uh, our new index ellipsoid to the form that we wanted, and we can say that these factors here have to relate to the principal indices of refraction. We can relate one over n x prime squared to this factor, right? And because this term is small, we can do a Taylor series expansion. And write this one over one plus a small term as one minus a small term. And then again, we can take the square root of both sides and write square root of one minus a small number is one minus one half of that small number. Sure. I mean, all I'm doing is you could do it in a single step. If you took the you use calculus and took the derivative of this with respect to this quantity, and you'd come up with a formula for how you do a Taylor series expansion of some arbitrary function. We're just doing it in steps that are functions we already know the Taylor series expansion of: one minus a small number, one plus a small number, one over one plus a small number. One. Okay. Um, so the index in one direction gets shifted in one, direct, one way. In the other direction, it gets shifted in the opposite direction. So we're introducing birefringence is what that's saying. Um, right, and we'll see in a minute that we have a way for quantifying how hard you need to drive the crystal in order to get a significant amount of birefringence. It's called the half-wave voltage. Um, you want to skip ahead and do that? Or do you want to look at another example? Well, we, we did. That's it. He wants to talk about halfway voltage. He wants to do another example. Uh, the other, you know, it's going to be faster to do the example than to do Show the quartz remains uniaxial in the presence of an applied electric field along the z-axis. Okay, so you look up quartz, SiO2, a 3,2 class trigonal crystal. Here's the, the, the uh, electro-optic tensor for a 3,2 class trigonal crystal. If the electric field is applied in the z-axis, we have an electric field that looks like 0,0, 0 times some component along z. But you'll notice that the change in the permittivity tensor, which is given by the dielectric, or the f, uh, the electro-optic tensor times the electric field, the third column is always 0. Of this tensor, the first two rows of this tensor are 0. So you multiply that through, you get 0. So quartz remains. U- so we can do that regular matrix multiplication. You're careful. You have to be careful that you don't screw up the order of the indices. Is K is 1, 2, 3. So IJK. So okay. Oh, yeah. I you mean. you mean to remember that, that 1 was 1, 1, and that 4 was 2, 3? Yeah. Like that? As long as I write this like this, a 3 by 6, as opposed to a 6 by 3, I can do that. OK. So uh, modulation is what we want to do, typically, by applying an electric field. Um, it allows you to change the indices of refraction dynamically. We call that modulating the beam. Modulating the phase of the beam, if it goes through the material and has its phase changed, as so the material's index of refraction is changing. And we can convert a phase shift to an amplitude shift. We looked at a couple movies last time that sort of hinted as to how you do that. Um, and we'll, we'll go through that uh, again. Uh, next time, but uh, the amount of birefringence we have between the two polarization states, that's what changes when we apply an electric field. Depends on the difference in the indices of refraction. This is the k vector in free space. This times the indices of refraction is the difference in the k vectors in the material. Times the thickness is the difference in the phase in the material. So this is just an expression now that relates this uh, theoretical change to some observable, some birefringence. And typically, you have a crystal that has either electrodes on the input and output face of the crystal, or the two transverse faces of the crystal. This is called the longitudinal modulator, and here Lights going in the same direction that the electric field is applied. So in our example for KDP, we applied an electric field along z, and that changed the relative indices of refraction of the x and y states. So if this is filled with KDP and you put transparent electrodes, I think tin oxide is a common transparent electrode material, and you shine light through it. If this is the z direction, your light will be have polarization components along x and y can change the indices of refraction of x and y by applying an electric field in that direction. And you can basically create a variable wave plate, a variable wave plate where you can change the retardation very rapidly because it's electronically controlled. There's no mechanical inertia to overcome. Right. So here were our modified indices of refraction along x and y. If we plug those in to our equation for the birefringence, the unperturbed indices of refraction cancel out. We look at the difference between the two polarization states. And then this perturbation, since it's negative in one half and in one index and positive in the other half, when you subtract them, it doubles. And the amount of birefringence then looks like this. It's proportional to that uh, perturbation term. Well, we can write... Um, Change in index is a function of the electric field. The amount of birefringence looks like that change in index times the thickness of the crystal, V. So if I have an electric field times the thickness of the crystal, the electric field is in the direction of the, the crystal thickness. E times D is a the voltage. Uh, these are cubed. These are cubed. Uh, there was. One there, and two there. OK, so what you can do is you can ask, how much voltage does it take to get this birefringence to be equal to pi, half of a wave? And that will cause the polarization of light to invert. That would be a half-wave plate. Okay. Okay. And it cause, uh, sorry, oh. it causes the relative polarization of one uh. principal axis to invert relative to the other. Okay. Okay. That would be a half-wave plate. Anywhere from a zero-wave plate to a half-wave plate gives you sort of all the usable retardations you'd want. Anything beyond that can be described as like multiple multiple uh, half-wave plates. Okay, so. Um, we call this geometry epochal cell, where the electrodes are on the front and the back. And what's interesting here is the way the electric field and uh, thickness of the crystal combine, our final expression for the birefringence is independent of the crystal dimensions. So making the crystal longer would increase the uh, interaction length, but it decreases the electric field in the crystal because you have a fixed voltage. At a greater and greater distance, it's a weaker electric field, and those effects cancel up. So setting that retardation equal to pi and then solving for the voltage necessary to achieve that, we call that the halfway voltage. And we can write it, instead of in terms of omega and c, we can write it in terms of the wavelength. And you remember this R63 had units on the order of 10 to the minus 12 meters per volt. Okay, so uh, lambda is like 10 to the minus 6 meters, so we get something like 10 to the 6 volts. Wait, what's that lambda? Like? This is the wavelength of the light. It affects the frequency. Right, so 10 to the negative 10. Well, well, so one micron light is the near infrared. I'm just doing order of magnitude. <laughs> 10 to the minus 6, 10 to the minus 7. Um, we get voltages on the order of megavolts, right? or hundreds of kilovolts. Um, OK, so I've got a few slides that describe how we keep track of modulation. Uh, we saw some of these diagrams before. Not all of them. We kind of got ahead of ourselves last time in our, in our discussion. Um, If you have phase modulation, what that's saying is that some sinusoidal wave is having its uh, its phase changed by some slowly varying modulation, and as a result, the modulated wave has, looks like it has regions where its frequency is decreased, regions where its frequency is increased, decreased, increased. So this would be phase modulation or frequency modulation. And that's what you have when light propagates through a long, polarized along one of the principal axes. You can change the index of refraction, That changes the phase of the light going through. But it doesn't directly produce a change in the amplitude. So this is what a phase-modulated light beam would look like. So is that AM? No. This is FM. So AM would have not the would have a constant frequency underneath, but the amplitude would be varying. Okay, so you can convert frequency modulation to amplitude modulation. One way you could interfere a beam that looked like this with a beam like that certain regions where they're the same frequency, let's say here they're the same frequency, you get them to cancel out or to add. And in other regions where they're not the same frequency, they wouldn't uh, cancel or add uniformly in time. You can convert amplitude to phase modulation. Our crystals generally produce phase modulation, and then we have to externally convert that to amplitude if we want to generate an amplitude modulator. Okay, so. Um, We talk about modulation in terms of sidebands. This is what we started to talk about last time. If you have a field with a fixed amplitude, but its frequency has some phase, or its its argument of its uh, sinusoidal function has some phase that's changing in time, this is my modulation waveform. This is the modulation depth going to depend on the, the amount, that's the amount of modulation, that's the frequency of the modulation. We said we can expand this, or at least we can uh, expand the e to the i m cosine omega t part using this Jacobi-Anger identity. We did this with acoustic-optic modulation as well as the sum of Bessel functions. And so we write out that sum using these terms, that looks like our incident wave, E naught times e to the i omega t, with no modulation. And then that gets, we multiply that by some phase term that has some some amount or depth of modulation and some frequency. This term we expand using the Jacobi-Anger identity into uh, Bessel functions. And we'll ignore higher order Bessel functions because if we have small modulation depth, because realistic electric fields only produce small perturbations to the index of refraction, then we're going to have small modulation depths and we can ignore higher order Bessel terms. We'll just write the n equals minus 1, 0, and plus 1 terms. And so n equals minus 1 gives us the minus first Bessel function evaluated at the modulation depth. And the frequency is going to be downshifted by omega t, where omega is the modulation frequency. The, the zeroth term has no phase shift, because n equals 0. So this zeroth order term represents the incident wave Having its amplitude decreased, as some of the amplitude gets shifted into this minus first-order sideband and this plus first-order sideband, and the n equals one term, right, has a j one for its amplitude and a phase or a frequency that gets upshifted by plus omega t. Okay, so we can say that the j to the the negative. Uh, Order Bessel functions are related to the positive order Bessel functions, so we can write this, um, write this term in terms of this term. And that's what we have here. And this e to the i omega t minus omega t e to the i omega t plus omega t. This looks like a cosine, right? And these are what the uh, phaser pictures look like. there for frequency modulation. That's. So this is J1 right there. This is positive J1. This is minus J1. They have the same amplitude, right. just different signs due to that, uh, that uh, Bessel function identity. And because they represent terms at different frequencies, they're rotating in different directions. In this reference frame, where we are following the, the carrier... Omega t. So if we start with a phasor that's a certain magnitude, when you phase modulate it, you reduce its magnitude and couple some of that power into the sidebands. Sidebands are shifted in frequency by the modulation frequency. The magnitude of the sidebands depends on the depth of the modulation. And that's the, uh, right there, that's the phasor representation. So we, we talked a little bit about that last time, and this, that's where we'll end up. Today. And the, red is the, the, the red is the sum of all three of these, so it's the left-hand side of the equation.